in our study, we found that nurses felt they weren't listened to. They felt they didn't have the power to make a change. And when professionals feel like that for whatever the reason is, whether it's anybody's fault or just the nature of the system, it certainly doesn't set people up to be proactive and to work to make a difference for children. A lot of reviews still identify silo working and it is understanding and it's making sure that you can have those honest conversations with professionals to say actually this needs looking at and it's in the best interest of the family. Rather than constructing herself as the bad person dobbing the mother into child protection, she was actually able to present the case that child protection, they're not there to take children away. They're there to support families and to have better outcomes for children. Hello and welcome to AOCPP's podcast. I'm Wendy Thurigood and the Director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. Today I'll be talking to Dr Lauren Lines about her research paper published in our journal, Child Abuse Review titled Constructing a Compelling Case, Nurses' Experience in Communicating Abuse and Neglect. Lauren is currently in Australia, so welcome from down under from the UK. But before we get into the discussion, Lauren, would you like to give us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself and your background? Hi, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to be here to talk about some of the research that I'm doing with my colleagues. So my background is in paediatric nursing. I worked as a registered nurse at a tertiary specialist paediatric hospital in acute care paediatric areas. Since then, I've got a job now, a balanced academic role where I do teaching in undergraduate nursing degrees, as well as teaching in postgraduate paediatric and child and family health nursing, which is a lot like the health visiting role in the UK. And I also have a research component of my role where I do research looking at children's health, safety and well-being, and specifically how nurses and midwives contribute to keeping children safe from abuse and neglect. Thank you. So just before we start is the comparison of the two roles here in over in Australia and here in, in the UK. So it will be good to, to hear how that can be blended. Your paper is um, pulls out some really key points. So can you briefly explain about your research paper and what drove you your interest in this area. Sure, yeah. So this paper is reporting on a broader study I did actually as part of my PhD, which I was awarded in August last year, August 2020. And it's just presenting just one part of that research, which was specifically looking at nurses' communication around abuse and neglect to child protection services and also to families, how they communicate that in a really effective way to make sure their message and goal is heard. Yeah, because it's quite different. We were just talking before we got chatting in the difference within the nurses' structure set up, but I've certainly seen over my career people feeling disempowered to actually take it. When we look at reviews, which are always the worst case scenario, how people miss that opportunity to actually make a referral or make their case heard. So, you know, can we pull out some key findings that nurses struggled with from your paper? Yeah, Yeah, so there were a number of key things that really came out of this paper. So I guess importantly, nurses really felt quite, I called it disappointed, discouraged and disenfranchised 
they felt that they weren't being listened to by child protection services. They would report their concerns, but then they felt that the child protection service didn't intervene or didn't intervene quickly enough. Sometimes this would take a very long time. But even even in doing that, they realised that was their responsibility to try and communicate these concerns. And I guess part of this is really complicated because it's not easy to communicate situations like this. Situations with families are often really complex. They're dynamic, they're changing. And how do you communicate all of these things, including gut feelings that you might have in a really succinct way that explains accurately what's going on so that child protection services can make the right decision for children. And that's all in the context of systems that are overwhelmed and overburdened and don't always have the capacity to respond. And equally an acute nurse wouldn't have the whole information. So how do your records tie up with people that are working, if you're an acute nurse, to the community to actually, do they come together or is it just the reporting on what they're seeing at that moment in time? Unfortunately, that's a real challenge area in the system. I mean, we do have procedures in place where we legally are allowed to share information with the purpose of keeping children safe. But unfortunately, there's no real mechanism to easily share between different services. And even though you may have one specific health service, which may be linked to community services, there are, of course, private GP practices which aren't linked. And there's often not a lot of communication between these unless nurses deliberately go out there and try and communicate. And equally, child protection services don't necessarily communicate easily and well across all of these services outside formal procedures. So if a child is in hospital, does that information get shared with that GP? Do they have any duty to be part of the system? Um, It's really quite complicated and often does depend on the individual. It's kind of a new thing that we're the information sharing that we have and people can be a little bit hesitant to use it. There is always that tension between confidentiality and keeping children safe. So it tends to be that the central record for children's safety is held by the Child Protection Service and sharing with GPs can happen from hospitals, but most often with the family's consent, people get a little bit concerned and worried about sharing without the family's consent. Yeah. I I saw in your paper that there was a good point where the nurse was empowering the mother to actually take account for what was going on. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the participants I spoke to actually talked a little bit about how rather than constructing herself as the bad person, dobbing the mother into child protection. She was actually able to present the case that child protection, they're not there to take children away. They're there to support families and to have better outcomes for children. So what happened in this situation, the participant explained that there was a broken door in a rental property. And by giving the mother the telephone to call child protection services. The mother was taking control. She didn't feel like she was, I guess, the victim of a report to child protection, which really can come across quite punitively as opposed to empowering the mother in that process. So it really helped to break down the barrier and seeing child protection as the big stick and the punishing punitive side of the spectrum. 
that, that would be considered a real area of best practice, wouldn't it? Because we work in partnership with the families. We try and work with them at an earlier point. So when we're looking at the midwives to actually recognise where those problems are going to lie, whether it be drug, alcohol, what other services are involved, to get that person, we see pre-birth is the key point for early intervention. And of course, life stories will change and there'll be other challenges, but it's how those nurses quite rightly can encourage the family to take responsibility for what's going on. Yeah, and that's a real difficult area because ideally we want to work with families in partnership, but unfortunately this can also be really difficult when families are violent, there's drugs and alcohol, when families are at risk of disengaging from services. So it's that real balancing act of trying to engage the families in this process but also not scaring them away by getting too involved. So it's a real balancing act and keeping the child in focus in all of this. Yeah. So, so that's looking at the wider implications of the children and the families and the nurses, isn't it? We were talking earlier in relation to how the systems are different. I was explaining a little bit about designated statutory roles. You don't have anything similar in Australia, do you? Are you meaning the designated statutory roles of nurses? Yeah. So that's a little bit different here. We do have some specific roles that are only just starting to come out. They're not necessarily the same in every state and territory. And these it's really quite a small area of practice and it's certainly not consistent across Australia. And yeah, it's a real area for development, but it's not something that is consistent Australia-wide or really very well established at this stage. It's really just starting as a very small area. Yeah, because what has helped the UK is the standard working together, which goes across the nations and, and the UK to actually bring about legislation that we can work to as best practice. And equally reflective practice to make sure that we have that embedded, that people can talk about tricky cases and maybe even come to a point where they're empowered to be a bit more responsible about what they're seeing under supervision and reflection. And we've worked hard. It's always something that comes up in reviews, though, if that nurse or person hasn't had that support, there's that gap. So we see it as key to empowering staff to help with their frustrations and equally communicate with child protection services. In Australia, we don't have exactly the same kind of structure for critical reflection, certainly in community child and family health nurses. There's definitely that structure where nurses do have someone that they are able to go to to get that reflection and get that supervision for cases they see that they are particularly difficult or they'd like to discuss. So certainly in the community setting with child and family health nurses, that is quite well embedded. But in the acute care setting, it's really not done in the same way. It is an area that we're starting to develop. I know there's colleagues of mine working in that area to start to develop this in the acute care setting, but it's really done on quite an ad hoc basis. When you think about the emergency department, you have a child come in, they're acutely unwell, there's concerns about abuse and neglect. You might not have the full picture And then you will go home at the end of your shift, at the end of the day, and there's no real formal 
way to discuss that other than sadly in the case where there's been a death then there's those formal ways to reflect and consider practice but yeah just in the in the acute care setting just in the sense of child abuse and neglect and critical reflection and supervision that's not really present at this stage but it's certainly an area that really could be improved. Yeah, with the acute section, we had reporting. So any child, any child admission, you would actually do a what we'd call an A&E form and that would go to our public health nurses. And obviously you get a lot of sport injuries that come in. So you get a lot of stuff that is just, you know, sort of just parked. But equally, you have low level incidents that can actually help build a picture. So the public health nurses can support the acute setting in identifying. So you know, say if you have a child that comes in four times a month, that starts triggering concerns and to actually go and look at the house. And there's been some really good joint working from acute nurses that have that investigative mindset to actually think, right, we're sharing this and we're putting this down. And the key is the observation. And I think as nurses, we are dealing with an acute situation. You know, you're dealing with what the child is presenting. You're believing all what the mother is saying or the carer. And it's, it's treated as an incident. It's when you start tying up those incidents. So communication and consent. And it's a blanket consent. As I say, it was set out in working together that this information had to be shared. And it really has empowered and embedded the nurse's responsibility. I wonder, how does that work across different hospitals? Because certainly in Australia, we have a lot of different hospitals that families potentially could attend and they may not always be tracked, certainly here across different hospitals. We have a really interesting system that's taken many years to embed. It's called the Child Information Sharing Systems, commonly known as CPIS. It's come about in the fact that we were concerned about fabricated and induced illness where people would literally hospital hop, but equally joining up people's journeys. So it's triggered on the NHS number. The NHS number is one that's deemed should never change. So any attendance, it will trigger. And this NHS number, so the date of birth and the child is put in admission of an A&E attendance, and that will just trigger and it will pull up that child's history. So if somebody is hospital shopping, we'll be able to get that picture of what that child's been brought in for, because we know that parents, if there is abuse or neglect going in and they've been questioned once by one hospital, they will perhaps drive further, even if it's to another state to actually get intervention. And, and that is something, as I say, that works nationally. We don't join up with Ireland, but you can access it. And I want to say it's been active in Scotland, but I can't, I'm not sure about that. We're certainly within Wales and the UK, we, we have a shared system. That's something that's missing in Australia. We certainly have specific health services that don't necessarily automatically share this information in the same way. So I guess that could be a bigger picture. And like you said, it will take a long time to set up, but that could be something for the future to improve the way that we're seeing children across and putting together this bigger picture. And that will equally alert to social care. So we've got an agreement that we share information. So if there is an incident, we can equally get a trigger. It won't give us the case file, but it will actually say that this child is known to Child Protection Services and it will give you the contact detail and it will give you who you can actually contact. And they will be sent an alert automatically that this child has attended this hospital. Particularly good if you've got runaways, looked after children, because what we found is that people can lie when they come into A&E, they can give you a false name. 
But what happens now is when they're checking the system, they'll actually say, I can't find you on the system. So they actually have to, to in the end, get to the right name and address and it will trigger. So was there any sort of real key highlights from your paper that you really wanted to pull out, that you really want to share, that you want to tell us a bit more about? Yeah, so I think what this really highlights is obviously it has relevance for nurses and it tells us a little bit about what nurses are thinking and feeling and their experiences. But I think importantly for the bigger picture, what this shows is that we could work together in a way that's much more effective and much better. So I know that you've got your working together, which explains how different professionals are working together. But particularly in Australia, we don't have the equivalent document which sets out how different professions are going to work together in a coordinated, multidisciplinary way to keep children safe. So even though my paper is really speaking about nurses' experience, I think it holds a lot of importance for anyone working with children and safeguarding children because you're going to work with nurses and you're going to work with other professionals. So understanding what other professionals are thinking and experiencing helps us to work with them better and to have new ways of working together. So we saw that nurses in our study, we found that nurses felt they weren't listened to. They felt they didn't have the power to make a change. And when professionals feel like that for whatever the reason is, whether it's anybody's fault or just the nature of the system, it certainly doesn't set people up to be proactive and to work to make a difference for children. So I think it really just points to how important it is to be working together as a team to coordinate our responses to children rather than these siloed approaches, which it can be one profession working together against another profession against the child protection service. And I don't know to what extent that's still something you find in the UK, but certainly in Australia, it's very much these siloed professions who may not have a good understanding of each other's roles and professional expertise and knowledge, which really stops them working together in the most effective way to make a real difference for children. A lot of reviews still identify silo working. And, you know, as much as we have all the documentation in place, it is still a problem that comes up. And it is understanding and it's making sure that you can have those honest conversations with professionals to say, actually, this needs reviewing, this needs looking at, and it's in the best interest of the family. And like you say, people can just get tired because there isn't enough resources to actually offer early help and intervention into some of those families that need it most. So it's about looking and working with your partners and it training and it is resources. During COVID, I presented some training to social care on babies at risk because obviously with COVID, it was going to be a very different experience for new mums. And we very much have our families that you want to focus on, but they're families that we know about. But obviously with COVID, those mums were going to be suffering the risks and concerns. And there was one local authority that agreed that every baby would be considered as possibly at risk. And they actually contacted every new mum and did some really good proactive work because it took that stigma, as you mentioned earlier, about child protection services. It was really a true and good example of early help and intervention. And actually, it gave a really positive community vibe. You know, they were doing a lot online. 
They changed the way they were working. And it was really open access. And I think that's the key is the early intervention because a nurse may hold a tiny little bit of, you know, information, but actually with non-threatening, you know, child protection puts that stigma, doesn't it? So if it's non-threatening early help and support, it takes that stigma away and actually engages with those families, especially if they have a disability or past history with social services. You know, if we change and reframe it, we can empower all professions to work together in the best interest of the children, really. It's a really interesting piece of work. Yeah, and in Australia, we have an additional challenge with that. We have um, First Nations communities who also have very horrific experiences with what was framed as child protection during colonisation. And so there's a lot of, understandably, a lot of hesitation, a lot of fear around child protection. And even now, children are still being taken away at a disproportionate rate from these First Nations communities. So that's an additional challenge. How can we make these services uh, to destigmatize them, but also make them culturally safe for this population group. Big challenge. As I say, fascinating, and it would be fascinating to have this conversation, you know, in a fuller way between the UK and, and Australia, just to share experiences, because as much as we have the processes, as I say, we still have the, the risks and threats that are associated with child protection. I really hope people take the time to read your paper, which will be with this podcast because I'm sure that would ring true for a lot of acute nurses or any nurse that doesn't feel that they've been in a child protection situation where their voice is heard so um, it raises that awareness of how we have to make sure staff get that opportunity through empowerment and support and reflective practice and good outcomes you know share those examples of that nurse that empowered that mother because it happens within the family it's not the professionals that are doing the abuse literally it is empowering those families to to change the way because I have to believe that it is through support and encouragement of the most vulnerable families we can make the biggest difference working with them in partnership to empower them to have a better desire for life really we really just want to empower families to take responsibility for what's happening within their own home don't we yeah, and that's definitely definitely an area for all professionals to how can we most effectively work with these families and, yeah, sharing those examples of good practice, not just the really awful things that happen, but these good examples of where practical ways how we can make a difference in these families because we're all working together in all of this and it is really helpful to see how other professionals, how other nurses, for example, have really made a difference in just a small way, but it might make a difference for another family. And it really does help to build the capacity of the profession. Yeah. You have to build your team, Lauren. Okay. Thank you very much for speaking to us. I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot about what we've spoken about. For those listening who are members, the association can access Lauren's full research paper via the members area. But Lauren, for those who want to know more about your research, can you share the details of how they can link with you? And we can publish that on our site, particularly for your Australian fellow comrades. Yeah, of course. So um, I've got a blog which I can post. It's just laurenlines.com, but I can certainly give you the link to that. And that provides information of my current research, which is looking at the scope of nursing midwifery practice in Australia. 
Uh, I've also got a Twitter account and I can give you the link to that as well. So you'll be able to contact me on Twitter or of course by email. I'd be more than happy to talk to you further. Thank you very much, Lauren. And we will put this information in the show notes of the podcast. And a final notice, I'd like to let the listeners know about the Call for Abstract, the 2023 special edition of Child Abuse Review on the theme of young people's friendships and safeguarding. For more information, visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. As much as we're UK-based, we're international, so we like to hear from other nations about what's happening and carry on that conversation because I think it's a, a national threat and risk and we want children to grow up empowered, happy and healthy, and that's our desire for all children and families. Thank you, Lauren. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aacpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.